Peace be upon you. So this week I uh, tried something new. Uh, I went on Twitter and uh, engaged with people. And I've had the Twitter handle uh, Talk Ron for a number of years, but really haven't been at, that active on it. And thought, you know what the hey, let me go see what the, uh, the rest of the world thinks. And uh, something I found out really quick is that the world does not like the Quran. <laughs> Can't say I'm too surprised. A lot of hatred out there. And uh, it reminds me of a story. Uh, one, one day I went to work and uh, one of my coworkers, uh, she was crying hysterically. And uh, I thought maybe someone died or something happened. So I went and uh, talked with her. I said, hey, what, you know, what happened? She said, I saw a swastika. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, did someone like spray paint a swastika somewhere? And she's not Jewish or anything. And uh, she said, no, I saw it on Twitter. And I started laughing. I said, you know, I'm pretty sure there's a swastika every day on Twitter. But she was a little sensitive because of uh, being a liberal and Trump winning the election. So, you know, we'll cut her some slack. But I just thought that was kind of funny. So when I went in engaging with people, I can't say I really had the bar set high. And needless to say, you just see a lot of uh, profanity and belligerence. Um, but one of the posts I saw, I mean, it came from a, a angle of hate, but uh, I thought it's worth commenting on, uh, was someone posted a image and it said 10 contradictions in the Quran. And obviously in the Quran, I believe it's chapter 4, verse 60, says uh, uh, this book contains no contradictions. And this person thought they were being clever by showing these uh, numerous contradictions that they uh, uh, found in the Quran. And I wanted to go through these uh, uh, quote-unquote contradictions and look at them deeper and come to the realization that, you know, are they actually contradictions or not? And what's awesome about the Quran is that it's structured in such a way that someone who's looking for reasons to disbelieve, uh, reasons to discard the message, uh, God provides them ample opportunities to do so. And this is one of the examples. Uh, these are people... They've read the Quran, they've looked at the verse, and they say, oh, these verses contradict, therefore uh, we got to throw away this book and uh, discard it entirely. And if they just had the slightest bit of sincerity, they would have realized that there are no contradictions in the Quran. So without further ado, let's look at this list. And I'm going to try to summarize the best I can the argument. Some of it was a little uh, incoherent or pointed to verses that didn't exist, but I, I believe I understood the uh, 10 points that were trying to be made. So the first one was in regards to the creation of human, uh, mankind. Uh, and they cited five different verses where in one verse it says that man created from uh, an embryo, and that's in chapter 96, verse uh, 2. Uh, the second one is that human beings were created from water, and that's in uh, Surah 25, verse 54. The third one is in uh, that human beings were created from dust, and that's in chapter 30, verse 20. And uh, in 1967, where it says the human being was created from nothing, and then in 1526, where it says the human being was created from clay. So someone reads these five verses in isolation and immediately says that this is a contradiction of the Quran. This doesn't make any sense. And they, you know, uh, pass the message. And it's simply not true because these different uh, forms of creation or substances that God created humans from has to do with what stage you're looking at. So if I say I created an apple pie. You can ask me, okay, well, what ingredients did you use? I can say, well, I used apples. Well, where did those apples come from? Well, they came from a, a store. Well, prior to that, where did they come from? Well, they came from a tree. Well, where did that tree come from? Well, it came from a seed. Where did that seed come from? Well, it came from earth. Where did the earth come from? Well, the earth came from a stardust that, you know, stars that exploded in the Big Bang. And where, where did the Big Bang come from? Well, it came from nothing. It came from God. And this is what it comes to. These different stages in essence are different ways of looking at creation and depending on how deep you want to go it's going to give you a different answer 
So in one context, you can say, okay, how is the human being created? And you can say, well, it's created in an embryo in a mother's belly. You can also say that a human being is created from water. We know when we're looking for living life form across the universe, the one key ingredient we need is water. In human beings, I believe when we're born, it's like 90% water. And same thing with dust. We all came from stardust. You know, when the Big Bang took place and the first elements were uh, exploded into existence, the elements that were produced uh, created stars, and that's predominantly hydrogen and helium. And when these stars expand and then they explode, creating supernovas, uh, additional elements are created. And this stardust is what, you know, we're all made of. And even prior to the Big Bang, we were made from nothing. And in context of clay, clay is very interesting. I think clay, and this is my personal opinion, has to do with the metaphorical uh, description of the human being. Because with clay, you can mold it before it hardens. You can create shapes and forms and uh, structures from it. And the human being is in a similar position. In this world, we're structuring and developing our soul. We're molding it. And the end form we're going to have is when we die, and when we pass from this world, and we're going to see what did we create our souls into. And these explain these five different ways that God created the human being or the different stages, depending on how you look. And I'm going to link to a video uh, at the end. And this is uh, in regards to just showing how awesome it is. The uh, verses, chapter 96, verse 0 through uh, 5, where it reads, In the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, read in the name of your Lord who created. He created man from an embryo. Read in your Lord, most exalted, teaches by means of the pen. He teaches man what he never knew. This was the first revelation uh, given to Prophet Muhammad. And um, this word embryo is so deep. And I'm going to link to this video and uh, highly recommend to watch the video. You can listen to it, still get uh, be able to be appreciative of it, of what it has to say. But I think when you look at the visuals, it makes it that much more compelling. So on to the next point. So point number two, it says uh, in regards to, and again, I'm going to abbreviate. Uh, does God send people astray or do people choose to go to uh, go to astray? And the verses that are referenced is 612. It reads, say to whom belongs everything in the heavens and the earth, say to God. He has decreed that mercy is his attribute. He will surely summon you all on the day of resurrection, which is inevitable. The ones who lose their souls are those who disbelieve. So I believe they're emphasizing this verse, uh, this sentence. It says the ones who lose their souls are those who disbelieve. And then also references 1693, it says, Had God willed, he could have made you one congregation, but he sends astray whomever he chooses to go astray, and he guides whoever chooses to be guided. You will surely be asked about everything you have done. So one of the premises we have as human beings is the freedom of choice. And this is explained in 3372. It says, We have offered the responsibility, freedom of choice to the heavens and the earth and the mountains, but they refused to bear it and were afraid of it. But the human being accepted it. He was transgressing ignorant. So we as human beings, when we decided to come to planet Earth in this form, we took on the responsibility of the freedom of choice. And what this entailed is we had the right to choose for ourselves if we choose to believe or disbelieve. And God created the planet Earth and everything around it for us to freely make this choice without being under the physical presence of God. And this is something that is up to us. Now, the way God created this system is whatever decision we choose, God is going to amplify that decision. And this has to do with the way that the brain is designed. 
per God's guidance. In 1975 and 76, it reads, say, those who choose to go astray, the most gracious will lead them on until they see what is promised for them, either the retribution or the hour. That is when they find out who really is worse off and weaker in power. And then it says, God augments the guidance of those who choose to be guided, for the good deeds are eternally rewarded by your Lord and bring far better returns. So the choice is up to us. We choose to go with God or we choose to side away from God. And whatever choice we make, God designed a system where we're going to confirm that belief. And this is called confirmation bias, right? We're going to look for things in this world, things that we learn and understand in our logic to confirm whatever belief we already have. And this is the way the, the system that God designed, that each person is free to make that choice. But once we make that choice, it's going to be harder for us to change our mind. And this is just a reality. You think about how difficult it is for the average person to change their mind once they believe something. And none of us are uh, uh, immune to that. In 9.115 it reads, God does not send any people astray after he had guided them without first pointing out for them what to expect. God is fully aware of all things. So again, we have the freedom of choice. Whatever choice we make, God is going to allow us to continue down that path. The third point, so this was the third thing that they found, a contradiction in the Quran. It's in regards to intercession. So in one verse, it says that intercession is, uh, there is no intercession. And what intercession means for those who aren't uh, familiar is to believe that someone on the day of judgment is going to intercede on our behalf and allow us to be admitted into paradise. And this is the debate. Is there intercession or not? So in 2.123, it reads, Beware of the day when no soul will help another soul, no ransom will be accepted, no intercession will be useful, and no one will be helped. In 2.254, it reads, O you who believe, you shall give to charity from the provisions we have given to you before a day comes where there is no trade, no nepotism, and no intercession. The disbelievers are the unjust. So in these verses, it's saying there is no intercession. But then in 2109 reads, on that day, the intercession will be useless except for those permitted by the most gracious and whose utterances conform to his will. So how do you reconcile these two points where God says there is no intercession? And then in the other verse, it says, uh, except for those whose utterances conform to his will. And this is the reality is there is no intercession. This is a trick that the devil has played, making someone believe that they can commit sins. And on the day of judgment, someone's going to you know, come to their rescue uh, that isn't God, is just creating an idol, a partner next to God. And it's flat out not true. What 2109 is referencing is that if I say, for instance, I have a, uh, you know, obviously parents that I love. Um, and let's say, you know, God forbid that they aren't destined for heaven. I can't go to uh, God and say, God, please forgive them because the decision has already been made. But now let's say by God's leave that they are permitted to go to heaven and by God's leave, I'm permitted to go to heaven. And I say, God, please allow my parents into heaven. If this conforms with God's decision, then my intercession, quote unquote, it worked, even though it's utterly meaningless because they were already destined for heaven. The second that we say that someone beside God can intercede on the behalf of an individual, we're creating a partner with God. And how would this work? 
Because you ask the average person, how would Prophet Muhammad or Jesus or anyone know that you're one of his constituents? And what they say is, well, they'll ask God. So what? Muhammad is going to go ask God, hey, God, is this person one of my constituents? God is going to say yes. And then uh, Muhammad is going to say, okay, let's let this person into heaven. And then God is going to confirm that. It's ridiculous. It doesn't hold any, doesn't make any sense. Muhammad, Jesus, no one holds a candle to God. You know, God is the supreme. He is the one, the only one who judges in our affairs. And uh, his decision reign supreme. There is no one who can come and intercede. And we have perfect examples of this. You know, Abraham could not intercede on behalf of his uh, father. Uh, Lot could not intercede on behalf of his wife. Um, Noah couldn't intercede on behalf of uh, his son. You know, once the decision is made, and this is something between that individual and God, there is no one who can intercede on their behalf. And what's interesting is the only intercession, the only statement we're going to hear Muhammad make on the day of judgment it's uh, stated in 25 verse 30, it says, The messenger said, My Lord, my people have deserted this Quran. <laughs> so anyone who believes in intercession uh, is not following the Quran, you know. Uh, God willing, they'll be guided to the right path. But this question, you know, is there intercession or is there not intercession? It's simple. There is no intercession. The only intercession that's going to be acceptable are ones who are already admitted into paradise by God. Uh, meaning if I wish that, hey, please allow, you know, such and such person into heaven, if God has destined them for heaven, then great, I conform with what God has already decreed. Um, but I'm not going to be able to change any uh, outcome that's already there. So the fourth quote-unquote contradiction that this uh, post had, it says, uh, does God command uh, people to do evil in the Quran? And it cites uh, two verses, one which doesn't exist. Um, it's <laughs> They cited seven, chapter 7, verse 328. <laughs> And uh, what I think they meant was 1738, uh, because 1738 says, all bad behavior is condemned by your Lord. And the other verse is 17, verse 16, where it says, if we were, if we are to annihilate any community, we let the leaders commit vast corruption therein. Once they deserve retribution, we annihilate it completely. So if you take these two verses, one verse says, all bad behavior is condemned. The other one, it says that God allows leaders to commit vast corruption. Now, allowing someone to do something is different than condoning the behavior. I can condemn something, but doesn't mean that I'm going to force their hand to not do it. This is something that happens in this world. When we came in this world, we had the freedom of choice. By having the freedom of choice, we have to be able to commit sin. Otherwise, there is no choice. So God is allowing these individuals to create all kinds of uh, heinous acts and corruption and uh, immoral behavior to confirm their sinfulness because on the day of judgment, they're going to be standing before their Lord. And the question is, you know, they're going to be asking, why do I deserve to go to heaven? Sorry, uh, hell. And the answer is going to be obvious by their actions. And 3178 says, let not the disbelievers think that we lead them on for their own good. We only lead them on to confirm their sinfulness. The purpose of this world is to confirm what's in our hearts, be it belief or disbelief. And we have to be able to operate in a circumstance, in an environment where we can choose freely to believe or disbelieve. And this is what makes these uh, Islamic countries so terrible is that they're forcing morality on the people. If someone wants to drink alcohol, someone wants to uh, uh, do all kinds of you know sins and stuff with reason, um, they must be permitted to make such a choice. You know, as long as they're not harming anyone else, 
they should be allowed to do that uh, because they ha- their true convictions have to be exposed. In 47.29 says, Did those who harbor doubts in their hearts think that God will not bring out their evil thoughts? If we will, we can expose them for you so you can recognize them just by looking at them. However, you can recognize them by the way they talk. God is fully aware of all your works. We will certainly put you to the test in order to distinguish those among you who strive and steadfastly persevere. We must expose your true qualities. So yeah, God condemns all bad behavior. It's obvious. But when we decided to come into this world, we knew the consequence was that people are going to be able to commit sin. And this is the reality. People who choose to commit sin are showing that they don't want to be in God's kingdom. In 6842 reads, they will come when we will be exposed, they will be exposed and they will be required, required to fall prostrate, but they will be unable to. With their eyes subdued, humiliation will cover them. They were invited to fall prostrate when they were whole and able. Therefore, let me deal with the one who rejects this hadith. We will lead them on whence they never perceive. I'll give them enough rope. My scheming is formidable. A perfect example of this is Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh was a tyrant. He was a terrible human being. He enslaved, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds, uh, you know, uh, uh, people, the children of Israel. And um, if it wasn't for the sake that he had this leadership, if he had this authority, we would not be able to know just how terrible of an individual Pharaoh is. And God does this commensurate with the level of disbelief, meaning someone who has such high degrees of disbelief will be in a position to operate uh, to show just how disgusting of an individual they are. Uh, so on the Day of Judgment, there will be no excuses. And this is part of the reality. So we'll continue on. Uh, point five, and this has to do with uh, the chastity of uh, women. And it has to do specifically with accusing a married woman of adultery and what's the punishment. So should they be forgiven or not? And they cite uh, a couple verses. So the first section is 24, 4, and 5. Where it reads, those who accuse married women of adultery then fail to produce four witnesses, you shall whip them eighty lashes, and do not accept any testimony from them. They are wicked. If they repent afterwards and reform, then God is forgiver, merciful. And in 24, 23 through 24, this is where they say the contradiction lies. So surely those who falsely accuse married women who are pious believers have incurred condemnation in this life and in the hereafter. They have incurred a horrendous retribution. The day will come when their own tongues, hands, and feet will bear witness to everything they have done. On that day, God will requite them fully for their works, and they will find out that God is the truth. So, what is it? The reality is, every single sin we commit in this world, we have the opportunity, as long as we're living in this world, to repent, to reform, and to come back to God's kingdom. Meaning, if someone falsely accused a married woman of adultery, they have the opportunity to repent, to reform, and uh, to be redeemed. But if they choose not to, then they're going to be held accountable on it, on that action on the Day of Judgment. In uh, 3953, it says, Proclaim, O my servants who exceeded the limits, never despair of God's mercy, for God forgives all sins. He is the forgiver, most merciful. And in 9, uh, 9.11 it reads, If they repent and observe the contact per salat and give the obligatory charity zakat, then they are your brethren in religion. We thus explain the revelations for people who know. And this is the mercy of God, that he gives us the opportunity to repent. Meaning if someone committed such a gross act, 
to commit, uh, you know, uh, accuse a married woman of adultery falsely, then uh, they have, they still have the opportunity to repent. But if they choose not to and they commit to that lie, uh, then they're going to be held accountable for it on the day of judgment. This is just a reality. So the sixth point, I found this one kind of peculiar but funny. Uh, they said, what will the people of hell eat? And it cites different verses uh, in regards to the different foods that the uh, people in hell uh, are going to consume. And I added some more to it. Uh, so they were citing 84.6 and uh, 69.36. And it reads, suffering in the blazing hellfire, drinking from a flaming spring. They will have no food except useless variety. It never nourishes nor satisfies hunger. And 69.36 says, nor any food except a bitter variety, food for the sinners. So it doesn't really give any description other than the uh, fact that it never uh, has nourishing, it's bitter. Uh, and again, the verses in regards to heaven and hell in the Quran are all purely allegorical. You know, we are never going to be able to fully understand just how terrible uh, hell is or how amazing heaven is until we experience it for ourselves. The term allegory is used for us to say, let's give something that the human being understands in this world as a representation of a, or an idea of what it's actually going to be like. And in 2.25, give good news to those who believe and lead a righteous life, that they will have gardens with flowing streams. When provided with provisions of fruits therein, they will say, this is what was provided for us previously. Thus, they are given allegorical descriptions. They will have pure spouses therein. They abide therein forever. So when God, you know, describes heaven as, uh, you know, uh, rivers flowing and, uh, you know, uh, gardens and, you know, these beautiful surroundings, these are just allegory, right? It's going to be so much better than that. And it's funny, an example I have is I remember when I was in elementary school, you know, the playground you have in elementary school is fundamentally different than what someone is going to enjoy in high school. And uh, I was talking with someone who's older. I said, what do you guys do in high school? Do you guys have like a really nice playground? They said, no, you know, we just stand around and talk. And I was like, that sounds terrible. And I couldn't fathom how that could be enjoyable. You know, I much preferred to be on the monkey bars or, you know, going down a slide than just standing around talking. And that's because I couldn't grasp what high school was going to be like when I was in elementary school. And it's the same thing. We cannot grasp how, you know, fundamentally different uh, heaven and hell is going to be when we're not going to be limited to physical bodies. We're not going to be limited to foods uh, and trying to describe that in any other terms other than allegory uh, is not going to do it justice. So when God describes what the people in hell are going to eat, these are just allegorical descriptions that it's going to be terrible. Uh, so anyone can read this and it's not that it's going to be, oh, you know, one verse that says it's uh, drinking from a flaming spring and another one says that they're going to be eating a bitter variety. Uh, it's again, it's just allegory. Um one of the things that's just worth touching on is, you know, why are the descriptions of heaven and hell so graphic? Uh, and it's very simple. You know, God wants to let us know just how terrible hell is. God doesn't shy away from an allegory. And some people, they blame God. They say, why would God do this to people? And you think about it. In this world, if you choose to live an unhealthy life, let's say you just eat junk food, you don't exercise, um, you know, you, you smoke, you drink, you do all these terrible things. And a doctor tells you, look, if you do that, you're going to destroy your body. You're going to live a miserable life. No one's going to go and blame the doctor. This is a choice we made. And similarly, God is telling us, he says, look, if you want to last in the hereafter for all of eternity, you're going to need to nourish and develop your soul. If you choose not to do that, you are not going to be able to withstand the physical presence of God and you're going to be in misery. 
And this is just a reality that God is spelling out for us in the most graphic, those symbolic terms for us to understand just how terrible hell is, that we want to do whatever we can to stay away from there, uh, to get back into God's kingdom. So point number seven is in regards to the creation of the heaven. And the question is, you know, the contradiction that they find, they say in one verse, it says earth created, then heaven. And then in another verse, it says heaven created, then earth. And what's funny is that it actually doesn't say that. So the verses they cite are 229 and 7927. So 229 reads, he's the one who created for you everything on earth, then turned to the sky and perfected seven universes therein. And he's fully aware of all things. So it says he created the earth and the sky and the seven universes. And then in 7927, it says, are you more difficult to create than the heaven? He constructed it. He raised its masses and perfected it. He made its night dark and bright and its morn. He made the earth egg-shaped. And these aren't, chron- at least 7927, it's not a chronological uh, depiction. These are just statements of fact that uh, it's asking, are you more difficult to create than the heaven? He constructed it. He raised its ma- uh, masses and perfected it. And then it says he made the night dark and bright in its morn. He made the earth egg-shaped. These are just statements of fact. It's not about the uh, chronological order of creation. Now, one thing that's really fascinating is in regard to the uh, creation is that um, when God says that he created the heavens and earth in uh, two days in the physical laws, and then he spent four days calculating the provisions for every single creature uh, on this planet, People take this figuratively, they, literally. They say, oh, you know, how can there be a day when God didn't even create the heavens, uh, the, you know, the sun, the moon, uh, the earth yet? And um, the, the funny thing is these aren't meant to be literal days. These are meant to be a measuring stick to let us know that the complexity in creating the, the physical universe and all the laws um, is half as difficult as creating uh, the exact amount of provisions for every single creature who is ever going to live on this planet earth and this is just a simple fact and it's not meant to be taken literally in the sense that you know god created the heavens and earth in six days and one thing that's worth also mentioning is that in 79 uh, 30 it says uh, he made the earth egg-shaped and this is something that's a relatively new discovery you know we once we realized that the earth was round we came on later to realize that it's not actually perfectly uh, spherical. It's actually what's called a uh, uh, oblate spheroid. And what that means is that the northern hemisphere, if I'm not mistaken, is slightly narrower than the uh, uh, southern hemisphere. So it's just barely elliptical. And what's fascinating about God using the term uh, egg-shaped is that in Arabia at the time, chickens were not prevalent. Uh, Chickens came much later than when the uh, revelation of the Quran came around. And what was a more common form of egg was an ostrich egg. And if you look at an ostrich egg, it's the shape of it is a oblate sphere, just like the planet Earth. So it's actually a very close description. If you have to describe to someone who's living in the desert the shape of the Earth, uh, you can't find a better representation uh, in the uh, day-to-day life uh, as an egg. Um, So it's just it's very fascinating uh, point. So let's continue to uh, number eight. So in number eight, it says, if unbelievers reject the Quran, let them be. Uh, and it cites uh, verse 320. If unbelievers reject the Quran, you shall fight them. And it cites verse 838 through 39. And what's funny is that <laughs> these are actually, uh, they've uh, misquoted these, but uh, let's read the verses. 
In 3.20 it reads, If they argue with you, then say, I have simply submitted myself to God. I and those who follow me, you shall proclaim to those who received the scripture as well as those who did not. Would you submit? If they submit, then they have been guided. But if they turn away, your sole mission is to deliver this message. God is seer of all people. So God is saying that, it, you know, you can ask them, hey, submit, you know, uh, come to the, the religion, just like uh, uh, Solomon did to Sheba. And it's up to them if they want to do it or not. And if you do, that's it. That's your responsibility. In 838, it continues. It says, uh, tell those who disbelieve, if they stop, all their past will be forgiven. But if they return, they will incur the same fate as their previous counterparts. You shall fight them to ward off oppression and to practice your religion devoted to God alone. If they refrain from aggression, then God is fully seer of everything they do. And this is the fundamental rule in the uh, the Quran, is that aggression is only permitted against the aggressors. It's funny how many conversations I've had, and they cite verses that have to do with war. And it's like, yes, the Quran talks about war. You know, there's going to be a point where uh, individuals are going to have to stand up for their rights, and they're going to have to fight. And that's lives are going to be lost. And God gives us the guidelines of how to uh, to deal with that. You know, war is not tickling and pillow fights. Uh, it has to do with uh, the decision to take the life of someone else. And God gives us very clear guidelines to what that is. In chapter 2, verse 192 through 193, it reads, You may fight in the cause of God against those who attack you, but do not aggress. God does not love the aggressors. So the criteria for us to be able to, you know, fight, to, to go to war, is if someone attacks us, but we are not allowed to be aggressors. And it says, God does not love the aggressors. So if anyone ever aggresses um, in the act of war, uh, you cannot call them someone who's following the Quran. It continues, 2191, you may kill those who wage war against you. You may evict them once they evicted you. Oppression is worse than murder. Do not fight them at the sacred mosque unless they attack you therein. If they attack you, you may kill them. This is the just retribution for the disbelievers. These are the guidelines of war. War has to do with people taking the lives of other individuals. We are not going to sugarcoat that. The, the Quran is a uh, practical scripture for the world. And as of today, there's still plenty of war going around. And you want to have clear guidelines of what is tolerant and what isn't. You know, if anyone has a problem with the, the Quran talking about war, then maybe they have a problem with the Geneva Convention because at least the Quran is giving clear guidelines that aggression is not permitted against someone who's not aggressing against you and that oppression is worse than murder. It continues in 2192. It says, if you, if they refrain, then God is forgiver, most merciful. You may also fight to eliminate oppression and to worship God freely. If they refrain, you shall not aggress. Aggression is permitted only against the aggressors. So this is a fundamental rule in the Quran, that if someone is not aggressing against you, we have no right to fight them. God actually gives us alternatives in the sense of walk away. When it talks to the, the people who uh, um, uh, they weren't able to worship God freely, and God asked them, was God's earth not spacious enough? And yeah, there's going to be situations where people are not going to be able to mobilize, and God has recourses for that. And if it comes down to war, you have to ask, if someone is a believer, do they follow this criteria? If they don't, they can't say that they're following the Quran. So point number nine. So this is a, a strange one. Again, it says uh, creation was an act of bringing together. Creation was an act of splitting apart. And uh, the two verses that they cite are 2130 and 4111. 
And I, I personally don't see the contradiction, but I'll try to expand as much as I can. This is, dude, unbelievers not realize that the heaven and the earth used to be one solid mass that we exploded into existence. And from water, we made all living things. Would they believe? How awesome of a verse. It's literally confirming the Big Bang. I'm going to read it one more time. Dude, unbelievers not realize that the heaven and the earth used to be one solid mass that we exploded into existence. And from water, we made all living things. Would they believe? This is coming from a scripture in the dark ages of uh, Arabia, 1400 years ago, talking about the Big Bang and talking about that all life comes from water. And 41.11, it says, Then he turned to the sky when it was still gas and said to it, Come into existence willingly or unwillingly. They said, We come willingly. And this is the process that took place in the uh, the Big Bang. The Big Bang happened. You have hydrogen. You have helium. You have a lot of these uh, uh, elements uh, that are scattered throughout the, uh, the universe at the time as it's expanding. And one of the miracles is the fact that these gases came together to form stars. Uh, stars are predominantly hydrogen and helium. And these are where all the other elements we have in the universe come from. When a star reaches a fir- uh, certain critical mass, it explodes and it um, uh, produces uh, elements. And what's fascinating is that in chapter 50, 57 of the Quran, it's entitled Iron. And it says, Iron wherein God has pla- it says God has sent down the iron to the people. And it says, Iron where uh, God has placed strength. And what's really fascinating is that each time that the star expands, it gets hotter and more dense. Uh, more elements are formed until the core of that star becomes iron, at which point a supernova takes place. And all the elements that the uh, uh, the star has uh, created over the, uh, the millions and millions of years of its life, billions in some uh, uh, circumstances, um, get scattered throughout the universe to form planets. Um, and this is what took place. So I don't see what the uh, contradiction is there. And the fourth one, which I think, again, is a, a funny one, it says uh, the first Muslim was Muhammad, uh, and it cites 614, uh, 6163, 3912, uh, Moses, 7143, or some Egyptians, <laughs> 2651. And um, so they're asking, who's the first Muslim? And it's funny. It's uh, the first Muslim was actually, uh, or the first person to uh, call themselves the, the expression Muslim, submission, uh, was uh, Abraham. But before we get to that, is the question is, what is a Muslim? Uh, Muslim is someone who submits to the will of God, irrespective of the name of their faith. In uh, 262 and 569, it reads, Surely those who believe, those who are Jewish, the Christians, the converts, anyone who, one, believes in God, two, believes in the last day, and three, leads a righteous life, will receive their recompense from their Lord. They have nothing to fear, nor will they grieve. So this is what it means to be a quote-unquote you know, Muslim. But Muslim just means someone who submits to the will of God. And the first person to take that description and make it into a pronoun was Abraham. Abraham was the one who called us submitters, uh, who dictated that the religion approved by God is submission. In 2278 says, You shall strive for the cause of God as you should strive for his cause. He has chosen you and has placed no hardship on you in practicing your religion, the religion of your father Abraham. He is the one who named you submitters originally. And we see in chapter 16, verse 123, that Muhammad was inspired to follow the religion of Abraham. This is the universal force that uh, brings Jews, Christians, Muslims, everyone together, is that we follow the religion of Abraham. In 16, it says, Then we inspired you, Muhammad, to follow the religion of Abraham, the monotheist. He never was an idol worshiper. So anyone, irrespective of the name of their belief, 
their name of their faith, be a Christian, Jewish, Zoroastrian, uh, Hindu, doesn't matter. If they follow the criteria where they believe in God, believe in the last day, lead a righteous life, by definition, they are a submitter. And, uh, you know, these words, they've uh, taken on all new meanings, uh, you know, because they've tr uh, kept the Arabic, even though they're speaking English. And I think a lot of people, they uh, get taken back by that. One of the funny ones is God in Arabic is Allah, right? Allah just means God with a capital G. And what's funny is a lot of uh, people, Christians, uh, non-Arab speaking individuals, they have a problem with the name Allah. And what's funny is that in Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, the word for God is also Allah. So if they have a problem with that word, then they have a problem with what their uh, uh, prophet uh, used to call his God. So God willing, we're going to end there. Uh, stick around for the uh, the audio of the video, and I'm going to uh, link to the actual YouTube video if you want to watch the visuals as well. And uh, if you guys want, you can find me on Twitter uh, at TalkRon. God willing, I'm going to see if I can uh, keep it up uh, and stay a little active, but it is quite time-consuming. And until next time, peace and God bless. The statements we're about to show you are from the Holy Quran and is said to be the official, unchanged, pure word of God revealed over 1400 years ago. Claiming to be the word of God is a heavy statement and without proof or if a single contradiction is found within the book, the apparent word of God will be proven false. So without further ado, let's put the book to the test. In the 23rd chapter, titled The Believers, from the 12th to the 14th verses, God is said to give a detailed description of how the human being is formed. It begins by saying, We then placed him as a sperm drop in a place of settlement, firmly fixed. Then we made the drop into a alaqa. We will translate this word very soon. And then we changed the alaqa into a lump. Then we made out of that lump into bones and then we clothed the bones with flesh then we caused him to grow and come into being and attain the definitive human form in the 21st century we can now safely say that this verse is clearly describing the process of human development in correct chronological order however what we should be paying attention to in particular is the second stage referring to the development of the embryo the specific word used to describe the embryo in this verse is the word alaqa. The word alaqa, when translated into English, can mean three separate things. Firstly, a blood clot or to be suspended, that is to be hanging or clinging to something. Or thirdly and finally, a leech. Now all three definitions don't come anywhere near what we perceive to be the human embryo. So. Why are these words used and what significance do they share with the human embryo? Can the embryo be described as a blood clot? Well, what do you think? In the third week of embryonic development, a tubular heart joins with the blood vessels to form a primordial cardiovascular system. And by the end of the third week, the blood is circulating and the heart begins to beat on day 21. The first thing that comes to mind in regards to being suspended or hanging is the umbilical cord. But we can't use that example because we are simply referring to step 2, before the baby has even formed. But we now know today that the umbilical cord is formed from the connecting stalk. And the connecting stalk is formed as soon as the embryo is formed. The embryo's connecting stalk 
has even been described by John Allen and Beverly Kramer as an object to suspend the developing embryo in the extra embryonic column. So an embryo is suspended and does have a strong resemblance with the blood clot. What on earth would an embryo have to do with a leech? Figure A shows the structure of an embryo at 25 days. Figure B shows a leech. Now please note once again that the embryo in this stage is no greater than the size of a kernel of wheat. This is an x-ray of the embryo at 22 days. This is the internal structure of a leech. It's mind-blowing stuff, but you still haven't seen anything yet. This is the head of the embryo at 22 days. The detail you are seeing right now is absolutely impossible to be seen with the human eye and can only be seen with a microscope. This is the back end of a leech. There's no other words used to describe this other than mind-blowing. The pictures we have shown you are impossible to be seen with the human eye or even to be predicted by the human mind. Once again, the verses we have shown you were revealed over 1400 years ago. Are these the words of God? Descriptions of the human embryo in the Quran cannot be based on scientific knowledge in the 7th century. The only reasonable conclusion is that these descriptions were revealed to Muhammad from God, from God, from God. God.